right. Welcome to the Enduro Method Podcast. Josh Rempel here with Chris Reasoner. Chris, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Stoked to do this. Yeah. So real quick, just kind of give some folks some info on kind of where you grew up and when did you start riding and how did you come to start doing it? Yeah. So I guess right now I'm living up in uh, NorCal and then the summers I'm kind of back and forth in Idaho a bunch, but I grew up in the Central Valley, California. It's basically uh, just flat farmland. Um, my woods were walnut orchards. My dad's walnut orchards. He was a farmer. Just starting starting riding, we would go off and uh, go on my friend's dairy farms and just build like jumps out of manure with the big loaders that they had. And so it was very flat riding experience when I got started. But we would take some like trips to the desert every once in a while to like Mojave Desert down in SoCal and then the spot called Clear Creek. And that was kind of like my first taste of off-road riding, I guess, and super cool to do that as you know, a young kid. So I started out on like an XR80 that, yeah, I mean, I pro- probably everyone started out on Honda, right? <laughs> a little fun fact there is that <clears throat> when I got the XR80, you got a look, you got like a free gear set that you could pick out. So I picked out this Thor gear set. I don't even know if I could, I think Thor is still a company, right? I haven't really, I just don't see them in the off-road world, but so the chest protector that I wear today is still the chest protector that I got with my first XR80. Now it's probably like 20 years ago. That's awesome. And I feel like those, the new chest protectors have like, they're like almost over padded. They're just really hot. They like add all the foam and all the silk lining and stuff. So this is just like bare bones, plastic, you know, it's just lightweight. And I feel like it's a lot more breathable than kind of all the new Fandango stuff. Um, I got one of the Liat ones and it it's nice, but like you're saying, it's really heavy. And I don't know if like the padding on a chest protector is serving too much of a purpose, whereas just dispersing... <laughs> You know, if you hit something, it's kind of the goal. Yeah. My girlfriend Dylan has that chest protector too. And we cut out a bunch of the a bunch of the padding and fabric to kind of make it less hot. And I mean, as long as I, I feel like chest protector is just to if you take a stick to the gut, is the stick gonna break before the chest protector type thing? Like I can't really think of any other, you know, scenario where chest protector, you know, other than like getting pelted with rocks and stuff, but uh, these days are kind of feel like they're a little overbuilt <laughs> yeah totally dane well it'd be hard to argue yeah dane my girlfriend took a spill last year on a rock and she's got the liette but it, it's got like the wraparound on the ribs on the side yeah and now she's like swears by it because it actually probably did save her a little bit she still cracked a rib or two but it probably could have been a lot worse that is a cool feature yeah i kind of wish my 1990s chest protector had the <laughs> side rib wrapping right so start off flat ground yeah i had a my first bike was a honda 1976 xr75 nice Probably a little older but similar <laughs> yeah yeah mine was a freshie i don't know what year it was maybe like a 2000 or something or i don't know 1990 something and uh yeah i feel like i i kind of experimented with flat track racing a little bit my friend's dad was into that they had those sick bikes with like this kind of slick tires and uh no front brakes and that sort of thing no no front fender so i took my front fender off my cr80 and went to race actually it was tt it wasn't flat track so tt has left and right corners 
and then there's one like pyramid jump. So it's it's like a technical version of flapjack, which is normally an oval, you know? Right. And yeah, I tried that a little bit. And what I ended up kind of getting more into uh, right around junior high, high school was like the freestyle scene, like, you know, Krusty Demons of Dirt. I don't know if you ever remember those movies, but those were like, we were watching those VHSs all the time. And yeah, so we, we all had like kind of farm properties and acreage. So we would just, we had a couple like metal ramps that we built out of like Costco, you know, those like those, uh, what is it? Like the plywood racks Yeah. that they made out of metal. So we like fabricated up some big, like, I don't know, 12 foot tall metal kicker ramp that you see like at X games, you know, and built a huge landing with the dirt loader and, uh, <laughs> try tried to do freestyle stuff that was on like a ktm 125 i'll cut cut the fenders cut the air box trying to do like no foot cans and like supermans and stuff right. <laughs> it was pretty funny um but really i was doing that and then kind of the srh it was like if you remember that company srh kind of got into freestyle it was right around that time where it started getting like really like Kind of weird and like broy almost like i don't know it was freestyle kind of getting started getting weird and i started moving away from it it's kind of a different scene and basically i just got really into bmx which i'd been doing all along like freestyle bmx but i just kind of stopped riding dirt bikes around beginning of high school i guess uh, maybe second year of high school and just rode skate parks and built dirt jumps um spent a lot of time like sculpting up big doubles and like building jumps and and hitting them and as soon as i had my license i was just like traveling around california and oregon and stuff and just riding all kinds of different places but at a certain point actually it's probably after college so i probably spent 15 years just doing bmx i was i wrote some competitions and stuff but um, I worked at like Woodward West as like an instructor and like teaching kids how to ride BMX and that sort of thing. And just kind of having good summers doing that. But, um, at, right after college, I went on like a cross country road trip where I think, so I started California, I went up to Idaho, made it out to road skate parks all along the way, dirt jumps all along the way. And then in Chicago, I had like a really bad accident at the skate park and i was uh i was put in like trauma care for a couple of weeks and ruptured my spleen and that kind of gave me like a put me into like a re a reset type of mind because i just had so much time to sit in bed i was bedridden couldn't couldn't lay down for like a month or two and that's kind of where like i started branching out from BMX where I just spent all my time riding BMX. Um, and it kind of made me think like, I kind of want to do different things and try different things. So I use that, you know, bad crash as a way to kind of try different things. Started like making things, um, carving spoons, making banjos, started backpacking, just sort of trying a bunch of different things that I'd never really done, a lot of camping. And then that sort of, 
the camping thing kind of got me into like dual sport camping. So like riding dual sports, I got like an XR 600 going on like camp trips to Big Sur and all over riding that thing. And that's what got me back into riding dirt bikes, like in full circle, like after 15 year hiatus of just riding BMX, not riding dirt bikes, not really doing anything else, just focusing on BMX. And then that dual sport, like I, I was back on like a motor, you know, an old XR 600. <clears throat> and I'd go ride with my buddies. They had like CR 250s, KTM 250 SXs, and we were just riding single track. And I was just romping the XR 600 behind them, just getting punished, you know. And yeah, just then I just started getting, got a KTM 350. And then finally, KTM 250, two stroke. And from there, it's just been two strokes, 250s, and now 300s since then. But yeah, it was, it was basically around there that the that trailbound came about. Because um, I was experimenting with all these different things, and kind of the cohesion of it was that like I kind of wanted to do all these things on on the trail, like on these trips, you know, it's like carving spoons on trips and like, I don't know, making stuff and riding single track. And I started just documenting all that. And <clears throat> I wanted to make like a website where it's like a kind of an interactive digital magazine type of thing. Yeah. Because in, in school, I studied graphic design and then at towards the end, I started focusing on like more of a interaction designer, which is like websites and apps and that sort of thing. Like that was becoming a thing, whereas graphic design was like traditional print um, logos, that sort of thing and started transitioning to digital. So I did a lot of projects where I was experimenting with like just like different ways of showing content and stuff. So I just I just started making, I made a, I made a website that I published in 2014 and that was trailbomb.co. Um, and yeah, I was just trying to, trying to share those stories, you know, of the stuff we were doing on the trail and stuff I was making, experiences I was having. And it kind of transitioned into like, you know, Instagram sort of came about. Right. And, um, started posting on Instagram to like go to my website and check out, you know, these interactive stories or whatever. But at, at some point it just turned into like, Oh, I'm just going to start putting all my content on Instagram just because you had, it wasn't so one way. It was like people were commenting, you know, commenting back and I was seeing what other people were doing. So it made it more, more fun to share, share the stories that I was, that I was uh, making or, you know, or documenting, I guess you'd say. Yeah, I feel like you were, well, were and still are, but very much kind of a lifestyle brand before it was a cool thing to have a lifestyle brand. Like, because you're, you know, you've been out there riding, doing the things on the trail, and then now you're just kind of sharing what you do anyways. Yeah, totally. I mean, and that's that's just what Trailbound was in the beginning. Like, it didn't start as products or anything. It was just purely just trying to share what we were doing, just kind of 
have a memory of it, be able to look back on it. Right. Um, so when you come about like kind of things that you're interested in putting up or they're all just kind of things that you used or you're out on the trail and can be like, oh man, it'd be sweet to be able to put this together and, you know, offer to other people kind of thing. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's basically like things that we sell or, and the things that, you know, I make are just everything that I use or have wanted, you know, like that's like the basis of all the products is just like, I needed something. So, you know, I made it and then I just kept iterating on it, like kept breaking it until it, and then changing it until it didn't break it more, you know, like the chainsaw rack that I make, like I needed a chainsaw rack like years ago and I just made, I just spent a bunch of time prototyping different, different designs, different ways of strapping it, different ways of holding the saw, different materials. And just, I have like a whole box of just bent up aluminum, metal, like weird plastic, like all kinds of contraptions. And it's just, you know, over time, like find, like I figure out like the right design that's going to like hold up to you know, kind of getting abused and And that's what's super fun for me is just coming up with products and testing them and iterating on them. And that's what I did in school. It's just like they made you do like a hundred logos of one type of thing. And you just, you have to just come up with tons and tons of ideas. And I really like doing that, like coming up with ideas, figuring out how to, how to make them a reality and then testing them and then iterating on them. Like that whole, that, design process is like what makes me tick you know outside of dirt bikes like like any type of creative process creative thinking like that's what i that's what i really like to do other than shredding dirt bikes like that's right and if you kind of find them all the better yeah and that's i mean that's kind of what's been happening right it's like it's cool like like after college like I, i wanted to i started getting into furniture design and art and woodworking and and I, there's like a phase where I'm like, man, I really want to like quit my job as like a user experience designer um, and just like make furniture. But at the same time, I was like, well, I don't know if like if my, my audience is like people like rich people who can afford handmade furniture. It's like, well, I don't know, like that doesn't sound that cool. Um, but like now with Trailbound, it's like it's awesome because I make stuff and my audience, the people that are buying it are like people just like me that love to ride dirt bikes and I get feedback all the time from them. Like if they break something, I can iterate on it. But you know, a lot of time people are just stoked on, on the stuff. So it's just cool that that that's the direction that has kind of, kind of gone pretty free, free forming. Like I didn't really set out to create a bunch of products and sell them, you know, spend a bunch of time shipping stuff, but it's kind of, kind of the direction that life's been going um trail bound at least yeah yeah it's interesting i mean you are basically your own avatar <laughs> <laughs> yeah i guess yeah i mean that's kind of similar to like enduro method for dane and i like we're basically our own avatars we're you know we work other jobs but we want to ride on the weekends we want to stay in shape for it we want to race you know we can depend how much time we want to put into getting in shape for that but in general, it's just being about being healthy, being fit and, and having fun on the weekends. Yeah, totally. And that's, that's, what's cool about like 
your niche of Enduro Method is that like you like you've tested all kinds of workouts and stuff and you know what's gonna like perform best for trail riding or racing or something. So like if someone comes to you then they can you know, you you've got good advice. It's not just like a general workout person where you try to explain them what you do, you know, and they don't really quite understand what hard enduro is or what dirt biking is, you know. Well, it can't be too hard because we got a motor. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you find, because you still work full time, right? As yeah. Job? Yep. I'm working full time as a user experience product designer, you know, working on apps. Um, basically, I don't like this bunch of jargon, but how to how I sort of explain it to people is that I'm like a architect for a house where the architect is figuring out the floor plan, how how it's going to flow, how you're going to move through the house, how you're going to use the house, like where the bathrooms are going to be at. And then they work with a con- contractor to a construction team to build the house. So in like an app or whatever, like I'm figuring out how someone's going to use that app, how they're going to, how it's going to be easy or hard for them. Just trying to figure out how to make it easy the easiest possible for them. And then I work with the engineering team and we produce that and then test it, change it, test it, change it. Just always iterating. So, um, yeah, that's what I'm doing full time, but you know, trailbound definitely feels like full time gig. Like just, there's just so much time goes into just making the products, shipping the products, um, you know, updating the website, taking product photos. It's just like to, to run this company is like a million different hats. I mean, I'm sure you've got a taste of that with Enduro Method. Like you guys have to create a website. You have to you know, create social media content. You're making products and, you know, all that. So there's just, there's just so much to it. It's, you know, it's a, it's a small business. There's like tons of different parts to it. Yeah, um, for sure. I mean, it's been an interesting thing for us having our gym here in Driggs for seven well almost eight years now and that's like a totally different thing from having an online business you know physical location people can come in meet us say hi they know you know their friends come here or they did or they currently are and all that stuff and so there you you build rapport with people differently whereas online it's I feel like um we're definitely just in this stage still of just building a base, you know, being here long enough, having some, a voice in the space that helps people know we're legitimate too. And we're not just trying to, you know, uh, sell something, right. We're actually selling a product we believe in and use and, and, um, all that stuff. So yeah, it's definitely a different world. Yeah. I mean, and just the, it just, yeah, it just takes so much time, you know, just years of, just grinding away slowly. I mean, like, I've just seen, like, sometimes people try to, like, make, they want to, like, make a company, like, Trailbound or something. And it's just, it's like, you don't just put stuff up and then people buy it, you know. It just takes, it's just one of those things that's just, like, years and years of just being out there and, like, meeting people and just creating, you know, community. And, and then at some point, people, like, want to rep your stuff and and it's you know it's pretty cool but it's definitely not something that just pops up overnight 100 yeah i think the 
consistency part is is key almost i mean across the board right in almost any endeavor but yeah. for sure it's being and that's something like we always look to to your stuff when we were like oh shit we got to be like trailbound we got to get stuff out there and just keep posting and um yeah because you're just so consistent with it and it's hard i mean it's it's just time consuming yeah i mean with the with like instagram like it's just it's such a it can be such a time suck to just go on there and just get stuck in it you know and i i guess my kind of motto is like i try to put out content more than i look at it but it's like never that's definitely never the case like i i try to do it like if i get stuck in a scroll of you know watching graham jarvis you know double blip up something like i'm like all right okay i gotta stop like let me put up my content you know like put up some something from the ride this weekend and then and then get out of it but yeah totally 20 30 tony bow videos later you're <laughs> like shit i gotta do something <laughs> <laughs> yeah so what do you what do you think in future wise with trailbound just kind of keep keep going the direction you're going and putting stuff out there or yeah kind of build into a full-time gig in the future yeah i mean definitely like the goals like oh i'd love to do it full-time you know like it'd be awesome to to just do trailbound and just go on just go ride and just test products make products and everything like that um it's kind of not still not at that point even just after years of doing it where it doesn't make sense financially you know because put so much time into it that time and money into it but seems like the more i do travel on the more money i spend on moto like on travel like my my travel expenses like i track all that stuff now with the business you know and it's just it just goes up up and up because just so you just get so into dirt biking that you just want to travel every weekend and every chance you get and just ride dirt bikes every weekend and just end up breaking tons of stuff, fixing tons of stuff. Like, but I don't know. I love it. I just, I just love being kind of sucked into it, like fully infatuated with it. So even though it costs a lot of money, it's still like, still fun. Um, Still, it's worth it, I guess is what I should say. Totally. Same boat. I started tracking stuff and then pretty soon it was like, I don't know if I really want to know exactly what we're spending. Yeah, totally. But I, th- I think, I think it'll get there. Um, just kind of working on be able to keep stuff in stock, and you know, the more, the more it grows, the more stuff I can make, and you know, I'm just trying to figure out that be efficient with with the stuff that I make. Like my girlfriend always gets mad at me if I'm just spending a bunch of time like making new products you know even though we have a bunch of stuff that is like a good product but is out of stock like that's the that's the big thing with trailbound is that stuff's always out of stock and that's because make them in small quantities and then and then i get stuck on a new project that i want to do like the new thing is a lot more exciting than making the old thing in a repetitive task for a long time so yeah, well, that's part of the creativity problem, right? I mean, um, just when I used to do woodworking and stuff, the, the fun part for me was always the creating and figuring out the problem and the solution. And then once you get that done, you're kind of no man's land of like, okay, well, I got to finish what I started, but I already know how to do it. 
And I mean, it's still kind of fun to finish it, but it's not as much fun as the beginning. Yeah. So having that, you know, like you were saying earlier, you love the creative part, you know, the figuring it out, the what can improve, what can be better. And then once you kind of have it dialed, then it's the repetition and the, yeah, just the process of doing the same thing over and over, which is not as much fun. <laughs> yeah. Once you figure out, like, once you buy the cool tools that you need and sources that, you know, sources of material, it's kind of like, oh, I don't, do I really want to make like a hundred cuts of the same exact thing over and over? But yeah, this, you know, that's a part of the discipline, I guess, is just being able to do those kind of mundane tasks um, and just pump it out. So when did you... Um, from all that stuff, from the dual sport world, kind of the adventure riding you were doing, and then um, started kind of getting into some racing. Yeah, so racing-wise, um, I kind of just went out on a limb by myself and went to uh, a regular enduro, and that was a timekeeping enduro. I don't know if you, have you ever done a timekeeper? Um, like uh, Idaho City like kind of thing? I don't know if I've done Idaho City. It's like you put like an ICO computer on your bike and it it's basically more of a game than a race where if you come in early to a check, you could potentially get more points and and be farther behind. Yeah, so it's like you kind of have um, like Idaho City, basically you start and there's it's basically a trail ride, right? And depending yeah, yeah. on what level you sign up, CB or A or Pro, you have so much, so many minutes to get to the next check. And then during that check, there could be a special test. Yeah, totally. But you don't, you don't know when the special test is unless you're good at timekeeping and you see on the computer that like you're getting way behind. So you have to like haul ass to like get, to get caught up. And then you can like play the game of like sitting right behind the check until your minute rolls over and then go through. Okay. Yes. Some people hate it. Some people love it. Old guys usually love it because they can get a little bit of advantage if they know if they know the game. They could beat they could beat the young fast guys. Yeah, well, and if you if you got a good trail pace, it's it's a pretty fun way because you're kind of just cruising at like eighty percent most of the day, and then you only got to hammer down for you know whatever ten to twenty minutes, depending on how long the special test is. Yeah, but back when I started, like that full day, like a hundred miles or whatever it was like that beat me up. That was like hard. Uh, that was years ago. Yeah. I, I just did one of those and then just kind of started doing them, doing more of those races, started finding kind of a community there, like knowing people at the races, even though I was going by myself and like some old guys would help me out, give me tips and that and all that kind of stuff. So it's cool that like that you can just not know anything about, a certain type of race and just go and then figure it out like like some people might be scared because they just don't know like how it works or whatever but if you just go there's so many people there that i could just help you and it's just a it's always a cool community um but yeah i did that enduro racing for a while um you know c class i think i ended up you know after a couple years of doing it like finally like won the overall C championship. I think I won like every, every race that year, which is a pretty cool accomplishment. Yeah. And then I bumped to B, but like my whole, the whole time I was sort of, I was always wishing 
that they would make the races harder. Like the kind of rocky sections that were in these, you know, single track trail races were like my favorite part, but I wanted them to be even more technical, you know? And I was, I kind of watched some of the hard enduro stuff in Europe and like my buddy was really into it. So he kind of showed me, you know, the Graham Jarvis stuff, Mara Ramon stuff. And I was like, yeah, that's like, that looks cool. Like that's what I'm sort of looking for. But it wasn't until, you know, recently that the AMA Extreme did like a full series. Um, and actually, I should say a West Coast series because there's a lot of East Coast hard enduros, I feel like. Like TKO was over there, Mad Moose and like all those races. But the West Coast, I didn't really, there wasn't really any hard enduros. Um, but with the AMA Extreme West series that they started like that, like that was like, I don't know, kicking the butt for the promoters to like make some hard enduro races, I feel like. Um, so I, so I've been doing that series. I think this is, this is the first full year of it, right? Like last year got shut down because of COVID. I don't think it was before that though. I don't either. I, there was something, but it was hard to, this was definitely the most like, I feel like cohesive yeah i guess before that was like just like king of motos that was kind of the one west coast race uh yeah and enduro fest yeah oh yeah you were at enduro fest what was it 2018 19 maybe 18 19 one yeah, of the yeah. few, but that was my first hard enduro like i'd done idaho city a couple enduros mm -hmm. and then dane and i randomly like the week before we're like there's one in reno let's go do it and went and rode and that was super fun and same i was like oh this is kind of the direction that i would like to go yeah yeah it's just like kind of a different mindset you know just trying to survive trying to make it through the gnar um i don't know it's cool it's a lot slower pace for sure and it's i feel like it's a lot more physically demanding um it's just kind of a suffer fest but right yeah it's been i mean that's kind of the stuff that we've always sought out to ride anyways you know trails and stuff it's kind of like find the hardest stuff you can and that's kind of yeah. what we gravitate toward i guess even with this series where i feel like me and a few other people are like also sort of complaining or whatever you want to call it like about like making them harder you know <laughs> like like some of the races just weren't like technical enough um and that i think it's because a lot of the the people that are putting on the hard enduros were like doing hair scrambles before or it was a hair scramble race and then they kind of converted it more like i like the idaho sticks and stones one like i don't has that always been a that hasn't always been a hard enduro right they kind of just converted it it's always been like a really hard hair scramble right now well i can't speak to in the beginning i think i didn't i think seven let's see 18 19 so 18 was i don't know 17 or 18 was the first year i did it um and it was always 18 was hard 19 was hard and then 20 got canceled um but they were definitely hard enduros those years i don't know how it started yeah but it is interesting i mean from a it's got to be hard to put some of this stuff on especially if you're not active in the hard enduro world because stuff that's hard for hair scramble riders you know, like Cody and those guys 
I mean, that whole group just goes right through it and no problem, you know? So you're trying to put on a race that's hard for some A riders and B riders and, and then something that challenges the pros. It's a tough, tough task. Yeah, totally. And I don't know. I feel like a lot of the, like the qualifiers are always like hair scramble style. And that puts like all of the fast guys like in front of kind of maybe the more slower technical hard enduro guys on the next race, you know? So that's kind of frustrating. And like having like the high intensity, like start where you're in a line with everyone. It's like the fast guy gets the advantage there, right? Like the hair scramble guy gets the advantage. And then when you get into the really technical situation, like a not even that hard of a hill climb, it turns into a bottleneck because, you know, that fast guy is is bottlenecking up at the top. So I don't know. I I wish there was a way to just like make it like full hard enduro from the beginning, but the whole bottleneck situation is just, is just a hard thing to deal with. Um, Donner, this, the last race um, out here, Garhan did a good job with, that I think he saw everyone kind of complaining about all the bottlenecks in the whole series. So when we got into the technical situations, like he made it super wide, like the bit, like the tape was like, I don't know, like 40 feet wide. <clears throat> and there's like multiple tons of options, like tons of line options. And it really paid to um, walk the, walk those sections ahead of time. And I mean, you, You've, uh, you started doing trials recently too, right? Yeah. So I just got the trials bike. I did my first competition and every, every little section you walk before and then you ride it, you know, to to see the line. So like doing that at Donner was like super helpful because you could see the line that was the easiest, but you could also see the line that was, if that easy line was full, you could take the way more technical line and kind of get around it. And, and there's multiple options to do that, um, at Donner in like the big granite rock sections. And it really helped to walk the course ahead of time and take, and be able to take those more technical lines and really the bottlenecks. Like, I don't, I don't think I was in any bottleneck really. Um, maybe like one or two sections, but this definitely wasn't like last dog, or sticks and stones in the river where you're just where there's like a hundred people lined up like waiting to take their turn at disneyland type of thing you know yeah yeah the sticks and stones being a spectator there i didn't go to the last dog but because the finger couldn't ride it and just watching it it was like the you know if you were in the first 40 to 50 riders just from your start position because it was only what like four miles into the race yeah being ahead was a huge advantage right i threw it without a problem and right around i mean i didn't count but i was just kind of looking at people i knew coming through and it seemed like right around the 50 50th to 60th rider somewhere in there it just started getting backed up and so it's not that people couldn't get through it but then you know it gets jammed up and then you're waiting in line to get over the log, but somebody stuffs it in front of you to, you know, then falls over. And then pretty soon there are three more people behind you and no one will give you the space to get over the obstacle. And then you're just pushing over the obstacle instead of being able to ride it. And and then it just goes from there. Yeah. So, yeah. It seemed like that one I had a bunch of friends who were in the 
I don't even know where, probably the, well, maybe the like two thirds of the total group. And some of them just, one or two of them just turned around after sitting in there for two hours and went back to the truck. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's kind of what happened at uh, Last Dog. And it actually happened in my favor. Um, so Last Dog standing in SoCal, that's the one where I blew up my 300, my Freshie 21 gas gas. Um, it was, it was not, it was probably like a mile and a half, two miles into the race, which there's just like one single line up a really steep, silty hill climb. And, you know, you get halfway up it and then you're just kind of pushing up it and people are just throwing silt in your face the whole time. And <clears throat> a bunch of, you know, a bunch of silt got past my air filter. I think that, I think the air filter might've been like folded over the edge or something because when I got into the motor, there's just like so much silt in the throttle body. And then you take the throttle body off and the, the reeds were just caked as if it was like an air filter. Like the reeds turned into an air filter. Like it was nasty. So the cylinder was all scarred up. And yeah, so that was my first uh, bottom end that I did on the bike uh, before Silver Mountain. So, that, But anyways, yeah, that was a fun racing, expensive racing experience. But that silty hill climb, I got about to the top where my bike gave up, tried to start it like 50 times, turned around, went down. And then, you know, people... I think people were just starting to turn around right there because they're sick of waiting in line. And what ended up happening, because I DNF'd, I thought I was gonna like lose all the points on that race, but so many people turned around that I ended up getting third because I, I scored well in the race before. I think I got first in the qualifier, or whatever, race one, race one and two. And uh yeah, so in the B class, one person, Aaron uh, Cox, he made it to check two, and one other person made it to check one. And of all the other Bs, I don't think anyone made it to to check one, like of of the main hard endurance race. So I don't think it was that it was too hard. I think it was just too long of a bottleneck, and people were just over it. Or when I when I rode down and it was like shit guys i think i blew up my bike they're probably like i don't want to blow up my bike <laughs> they they got over it too i don't know right but yeah it's, it's racing huh yeah what was um what was so you didn't did you do rev limiter i can't remember no i have i've never done rev limiter yeah so that was the one the only one you didn't do in the west series right yeah that was my skip so thankfully the west series lets you drop one lets everyone drop one one race so that doesn't count against your score so looking back like i probably should have done all the races and then dropped my lowest score which you know that would have helped me um but it's just it's just so far to drive to texas um have you done it mm -mm. we were we were actually planning on going um covid and we had our bikes lined up to get driven down from Salt Lake and everything. We had our plane tickets. We were going and then it got canceled. Oh, no. Yeah. And yeah. then this, this year it just wasn't in the cards. Well, I got hurt too and do a lot of places, but I'm not going to drive down to Texas and not be able to ride. <laughs> <laughs> I know. That's such a bad drive. 
Oh, it's it's kind of that race. Like it's like, should it be on the East Coast? It's not really on the West Coast. It's like kind of way out there. Um, it never really caught my attention too much in terms of the terrain and obstacles, but I did talk to like uh, that guy uh, AJ in my class, and he was like, "That was that was the most hard enduro of the races." He said he just felt like overall it was like very hard and technical the whole time so i'm kind of thinking maybe next year i might i might make the haul out there and, and check it out yeah. yeah my goal this year was to do you know to do the full series and hit all the races um, and this next year i'm not sure if, i don't know i might pick and choose or i might just get sucked into and do all of them who knows but uh, <laughs> I'll be bumping up to the A class. Yeah. yeah, it's definitely fun. We're kind of the same. We'll probably cherry pick what we can. And I mean, if we can, you know, get it together and make the haul for some of the longer ones, we will. But, you know, it just depends on what life's doing at the time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you can make it happen, it's cool to do all of them. So you kind of know what all the races are like and everything. Um, and plus it's, not a lot of people do all of them, so you got a good chance at the championship. Um, yeah, so I end up getting first for the the whole B class championship, so I'm pretty stoked on that. Yeah, congratulations. Yeah, and then but there there's a number of other smaller events, hard enduro events that I might that I kind of passed on because I was spending all my money doing the West series. So this next year, maybe I'll try to check some of those out. The Jackets, Hard Enduro, Idaho, and like the one at XC Land in Montana. That one was super fun, the Bearmouth Extreme. Yep. Yeah, that was a blast. Um, from what Joe had said, he's going to hopefully, well, try and do it next year and up, up to maybe double to, maybe not quite double the admittance, but, you know, yeah, still kind of small. But yeah, that was super fun. Yeah. And I think like those type of races, those are the ones that are like, true hard enduro because they're put on by guys that like hard enduro there's not a lot of obligations in terms of like fitting the course to tons of different people so when it's like smaller participant smaller amount of participants less burden they can just kind of make it super hard and yeah those ones look pretty sick yeah there was another one down in colorado um that was like a week or two before silver I'm trying to remember where, but uh, my buddy went and did it. And it was funny because he was sending me a photo because Mario had shown up. It was like this little one-off hard uh, enduro, but Mario was in town. So we went and did that before Sticks and Stones. It was kind of cool. Yeah. It's crazy how, how much of a different level those top pro guys are. And not to mention, so like, you know, in our, like watching our series, like the West Coast guys, you know, there's like the top 10 are like insanely better than everyone else in the pro class and the A class and everything. But then even like the European, like that's a whole nother level. Like I feel like <laughs> we haven't really seen like our USA pros compete really in the European ones. You know, Cody, Cody Webb has done, does, has done well in the past, but like, you know, Tristan Hart and those guys, I feel like they haven't really had a chance at the Europeans. So don't really know how they stack up but i feel like 
the Europeans are just like on another level with their, I don't know what it is. They're just, they've been doing it for a long time, I guess. Yeah, I think that, I think the culture's been, it's just been a different, it's kind of like the trials culture over there compared to here, you know, it's, um, it's just been much more of a serious sport, I think, for longer. That's part of it. Uh, but it really should be cool because a lot of those guys are going over for Romaniacs. Yeah. This year. So I'm stoked to see how that plays out. I mean, the fact, well, that and like Keith Curtis, when did he go in 2019, I think? Yeah. Well, he did. He's he's done a couple. He's done it a couple of times. He did it last year. Well, the year that wasn't canceled with COVID. And then. But he did. He, I think he did a lot better a couple of years ago. So. Yeah, it's it's super cool. But this year, because Cody's going, Tristan's going, um, Nick's over there, but he's going silver this year, I think, and then wants to run gold next year. I just saw that on Instagram. So who was that? Uh, Nick Ferringer. Oh, okay. And then you got the inside enduro guys over there. So James and Matt. Yeah. Um, I don't know what they're running class-wise but they're doing romaniac so yeah it'll be really cool to see yeah you have any plans of doing a european uh kind of <laughs> <laughs> i gotta talk to dave but yeah no i'd yeah. love to um i'm i would really like to go next year oh cool and do romaniacs is kind of a on the hopefully on the calendar the hard part about those ones is that you gotta like be down like a year ahead of time and like because the sign up it fills up right away. So you got to like hit it like eBay and, and, and do it. And logistics. I mean, that's the other yeah. part. And so, so tough. I'm talking with some of my friends here. Um, and then there's, there's kind of a little group out of Montana that sometimes makes a trip that might be able to team up yep. with or get in there. So it'd be really fun. And I feel like if it, if it don't put a date on it and try and really work toward it, it's one of those things that's super easy to slip away. Yeah, it'd be a really fun experience and good time. Yeah, that's kind of like the ultimate hard and narrow goal, right? Like to do a European on. European on. Yeah. Because <laughs> it is such a stretch. Yeah. Yeah, and it'd be it'd be really fun to with with Enduro method too, just be able to document training, document kind of everything leading up to it and build out plans for stuff like that in the future that you know, maybe it's not a subscription base, but it's a one-off training plan for something like that. Yeah. Because um, those events, That's... like you definitely don't want to go and waste your time over there, right? You want to treat it pretty serious, even if you're not, I mean, I'm not competitive in the, in a winning sense, but I'd still want to go over and give my best showing regardless. Yeah, totally. Yeah. That's when people like kick it into high gear for the training and like, you don't want to blow all that money, you know? What about you? Uh, I don't, I think I want to do one at some point. I don't, I don't quite have a plan of when I want to do it, but still trying to figure out which race it would be. It's like Romaniacs is cool because it's like the best bang for your buck. Cause you get so many days of riding, right. but it might not be my favorite type of terrain. Like there's, it's not super rocky. It's more woods, steep switchback hill climbs. There's definitely some rocks, but yeah. So kind of got to research all the different races a little bit more, watch a lot of YouTube and see which one is like, would be the best, but. Right. Yeah. I had found like a, I just turned 40 this year and I'd found this piece of paper I'd written on like goals before I turned 40. And this was like, I think I was 36. So probably four or five years ago. And 
one of them was race race in a race where there's a Red Bull arch, but it was <laughs> what I meant was like like a European race. Because uh-huh. I was like, well, I did TKO uh, not last year, but 19. I was like, well, that counts. And Dane was like, I don't think that's what you meant. And I was like, yeah, you're probably not right. Or you're probably right. <laughs> <laughs> Half accomplished. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it'd be um, it'd be super fun to go do. So trials wise, you just got a trials back a little bit ago. Yep, same one as you, Scorpo, right? Yeah. Orange rooms. It looks like a KTM. Yeah. <laughs> made by made by Sherco. Exactly. Uh, yeah, the thing's been awesome. Are you getting uh, around? Can you ride right around your house too? Yeah, I've been just kind of pulling. I've just been carrying as much junk out to my property as I can, um, as I could fit in the moto van. So rocks, you know, as big as I can pick up essentially. And then I'm just stacking those up into piles and, uh, yeah, I've just been riding that thing a bunch the weekday evenings, super fun to just jump on that thing and practice slow static balances and nose, you know, nose pivots. And I've been spending so much time trying to figure out the, the Jap zap where it's like, it's what you use on like a undercut and instead of like a normal log hop where you you know you just kind of wheel into it and ram into it you wheel into it and ram into it you you tap that front tire and then the back tire jumps up onto the top of the gap you know onto the top of the obstacle yeah exactly getting the tire to basically leave the ground yeah and and then land on the object instead of Instead of basically wheeling into yeah. it, and rolling up and over. Yeah. Which is like super, super hard on a enduro bike and like kind of hard on the trials bike. It's kind of easy, but like it's, it's hard to do it all the high stuff. And I just cannot get the, the timing of setting that front wheel where it needs to be compressing the rear suspension, dropping the clutch, throwing your weight forward, popping of it. Like it's just like so many things. And it's, but it's cool to try those things because then when I'm like helping my girlfriend figure out how to like do stuff on her enduro bike, it's like, yeah, there's so many things that I've learned to multitask on a dirt bike with the clutch and the gas and brake and all that. It's like, gives me a reminder, like how frustrating it can be to like not be able to get that timing perfect. Um, But yeah, that's kind of my current goal is to get big jap zaps up stuff and to do it with proper technique because i've when i watch videos it's like my weight is like all it's like way far back it's not like up on the front of the handlebars like i'm watching like the pro guys do so right yeah. I feel like that part and then and it, yeah i'm same boat just continuing to try and work on that and then the other one is being able to hold the pressure so when you land you're not just slamming you're not at the mercy of momentum right you're actually able to have some control over the bike when you get to the top of the obstacle and then maybe a little bit from their vision and seeing where to place that front wheel. And yeah, I feel like those things just pay huge dividends on the big bike. Once you get back on them. Yeah. And just, and all the slow, the slow moving stuff, the slow corners that like you have to practice for the trials events, which us as Enduro guys, like we're not doing as much of because it's just so fun to hit big rocks and logs on the trials bike because it's so much easier. But what I've noticed is that in the race, in the hard enduro races, you know, after the first lap and I'm exhausted 
I'm just like riding slow. It's like being able to, I feel like my, I'm dabbing way less when I'm tired and riding slow because of the trials bike, because you ride the trials bike so slow and, and move your weight around to hop over rocks and like unweighting the back tire on stuff. And when you're like tired, I feel like that slow trial skill really comes, really comes in handy more than I thought it would, you know, like I knew the trial stuff was going to help hit bigger obstacles on the big bike and all that, but didn't realize like when I was tired, how much better I would be at balancing and stuff because of the trials bike, which has been a good, a nice thing to have. Yeah. And then that just always helps carries carries energy longer, right? The more efficient you are earlier, the better you're going to be able to maintain later. And that's kind of the, my, my goal when I, was just doing regular enduro racing is kind of the same as my hard enduro racing is to like be able to do the race at full potential and not get exhausted and like just start sit down riding you know like what happens when you and like i got kind of close to that when i was doing the regular single track enduro races but now moving on to hard enduro like i'm kind of back in that boat where i'm like exhausted like after one one lap or halfway through, you know? So like my, my goal has just been to like, can I ride a race at my full potential, the full race? Like if I can, do, if I can do that, I'd say I would be happy, but at the same time, maybe I'll probably be bummed because I'm like, because it's not hard enough or something. <laughs> like maybe, I don't know if I actually want that gold culture or not, but I say I do like, I want to have that endurance and have the skill to not waste energy so like this year i've i've been uh i try i started doing like a 365 thing where i just exercise every day you know um i watched my buddy he he documented his on instagram which i'm not doing but he did a story like every day saying day one day two day three of him you know pedaling his bike whatever and he's he's up to like 600 days or something but um i've I've stayed really consistent to that and I found that like I have to do it in the morning otherwise it's too easy to not do it in the afternoon you know it's too easy to make an excuse so kind of my main workout my amateur workout is just like as soon as I wake up I just like put on shorts and then go out and pedal the mountain bike um, on the road on fire roads um, fall on the train tracks like not not really any like gnarly single track or anything just just pedaling for a full hour and i've really seen an improvement on like the endurance for racing and riding just from doing an hour every day like of pedaling um it's been a huge a huge thing <clears throat> so i guess i've been trying to figure out like like what's the next step there um so I've talked to a few people, but like, you know, before the races, I'm just started to like do more like sprints on that mountain bike ride, like here and there, like up a, up a hill, like push really hard. So I don't know. I kind of like to hear your opinion on how to make the most out of like what I'm doing, like this 45 to an hour minute mountain bike, mountain bike ride, you know, because I think there's something there with the intervals you know, that I've kind of read about like interval training or high intensity or whatever, but yeah. What do you, what do you think? 
Yeah, for sure. I think um, so. There's kind of two two areas that you would kind of want to train, right? Um, you want to hit your aerobic base or like zone two work, which is going to be kind of longer and slower, right? I, I don't want to call it easy, but it's definitely not hard. Like you're not finishing those exhausted. Um, and the, the hard part about zone two is that it takes so much time to build. So like it's, you're not going to be able to build a big aerobic base in like a month. It takes, you know, three months, probably a minimum upwards to six months, depending on how big you need to make that. And it's just time required. So if you've been riding 45 to 60 minutes, even four days a week, that's pretty awesome because that's going to put you, that's going to just start building that base. And like I said, it just takes time to do it. And then once you get kind of closer to, you know, like a higher intensity race or, or um, if you got any, you know, goals where you're doing something like that or. Um, then you kind of start incorporating maybe some harder interval work in. And that can be as simple as kind of like what you're saying. Um, just use like the easiest way for me is just like a, a watch or a stopwatch because you can just go out and say, okay, I'm going to go ride for 40 minutes, but I want to do six, three minute, super hard intervals followed by three minutes recovery pedal. And I just need to get those intervals in somewhere in that 40 minutes because you know, if you're leaving, whether you're on a trail or riding from your house or whatever, you don't, I don't know exactly when you're going to get into a spot that might be a good place to run some intervals, you know, so that just saying, okay, I got 40 minutes. And during that 40 minutes, I need to get this, you know, um, six by six would be what 36 minutes of interval work in. And maybe, maybe that's a 50 minute ride then. So you kind of have a warm up and a cool down. Um, but that frees up the opportunity for you to be like, kind of pick a spot and be like, Oh, cool. I could use this slow hill and just do repeats here. Or, you know, if the trails kind of works out, you could just continue to ride it and hit those intervals when you're going. Um, but there's kind of two intervals that are pretty well known. So Balot, they're called Balot intervals. She was the um, lady that kind of came up with it and one's three minutes of hard work. So you want to be at like your basically VO two max level riding. So that's a, it's a hard interval for three minutes and then followed by three minutes at a recovery pace. Or if you're getting super techie, it's like 50% of your, of that VO2 max pace. Um, and it, again, there's ways to figure out exactly how many intervals you should do. But if you're getting probably in the beginning on the lower side, like 20 to 25 minutes of interval work, and then you can build that up to 30 to 40 minutes of interval work, you know, as your fitness increases. So that's pretty much a really good go-to one. And the other one is um, 30 seconds on, 30 seconds off. So 30-30, um, which you're going to have a lot higher turnover rate, right, as far as intervals go. But those are the two that she kind of came up with that were just best bang for buck for increase in VO2 max output. So, um, yeah, you can do those on trail, on a track, running, biking, rowing, you know, indoor rower, kind of anything it kind of works. And the idea being that because the duration, the time durations are lower, you can put in more work at that harder pace longer over time, right? Because you're only going for a max of three minutes and then you're able to recover and kind of get back and then put out that higher pace. Whereas if those intervals start to drag on to like the six, 10 minute range, again, it, it's not bad. It's just different, right? You're going to have to bring the intensity down to be able to maintain that pace for that, for that time duration. 
right? And so that's just a different tempo um, that you'd be able to to hold on to for that. So for the recovery sections, like, would that be like coasting or kind of just chill pedaling or like completely stopping and just catching your breath type of thing? Would be kind of like a recovery pedal, like a slow, easy pedal. Yeah, definitely not taxing, but in that in in theory, you're just regrouping enough to be able to put that effort out. And that three minutes, like you're gonna hit the end of that three minutes, and it's not gonna be a failure to be able to hold that pace, but you might be questioning whether it was a good idea. Mm. You know, it's it's yeah. gonna be it's gonna be hard. And so you go for that three minutes on, and then um you just wanna keep moving and kind of, you know, not come to a complete stop, but it's definitely not, you know, um, you're able to recover during that time. Yeah. Cause that's the whole idea with like for being for hard enduro is like you push really hard on a section and then the idea is to like be able to recover. Right. And continue to go. So like you're teaching your body to like, Hey, we're going to do this hard thing, but I'm going to be able to like get back up to speed quick versus like just doing like a long, normal hardish ride like you don't have any time to learn how to recover is that is that what it is well it's kind of two things like the long so let's use an example of like an hour right if you're going to go out for 60 minute pedal and we'll just say on a mountain bike so keep it the same like if you know you're going out for a full hour you could push probably pretty hard and if it was a quote-unquote test right you would be going as hard as you're able for that time now, if you're doing like a zone two work, you're intentionally going sub-maximal, right? To, to create changes in the body to, to be able to adjust for that duration. And so if you're, you kind of need both is all. You need the long slow distance stuff that's sub-maximal, which is like, you're just, you're building that, you're building the base bigger and bigger, right? And then you need the super high intense stuff um, in, within the aerobic range which is then you're building kind of that, that base, you're starting to build it up, right? And as that base gets bigger and the intensity ramps up, then you're starting to get into the anaerobic stuff at the top, which is kind of without oxygen and like the super sprint, or like a hundred meter sprint at the top. Then you got like your ultra marathons at the bottom. The most important part of this base is the aerobic part because the aerobic part is the part that refuels um, all the anaerobic work at the top. And so like, I always think hard enduro, it's, it's an endurance sport, right? Even though there are times where you're like picking your bike up or you just crashed and you just gave everything you had, you can't breathe. You got to actually sit there for like 20 seconds before you can actually get a breath. And then you got to repeat and go again. But if you got a robust aerobic system, you're going to be able to do like 10 of those moments maybe. Right. And if you don't have any fitness or aerobic system at the bottom of that, maybe you got two of them. Right. And then you're just whooped. Like nothing works anymore. You can't function, kind of stuff like that. I don't know if that answered your question at all. Yeah. Totally. What's, what's your thought on like hydrating throughout like these type of workouts? Like, is it this is, again, amateur workout person? Um, is it better to kind of teach your body to like, not rely so much on water throughout this or is it better to just like continue to drink water throughout the workouts and stay hydrated you know I, 
<laughs> I know it's like a it's just something I think about when I'm riding. Am I training by not drinking water? Like, I don't know. So I read uh, Dr. Andy Galpin. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Um, he's a super insightful guy and he's a, yeah, he's got some great info out there. And he just did a recent post that said, you'll actually get a performance and performance enhancement benefit from drinking seven ounces of water every 15 minutes for, for, for things that last over like two hours, right? Because mm-hmm. if you're, again, if you're in a race for an hour, uh, the likelihood is you probably don't need a whole lot of water. Like you should be hydrated going into that race. An hour is not that long of a time. I'm not saying don't drink water, but it's not going to become a big factor. Now, if that race turns into three hours or four hours, things really start to change, right? Because if you don't drink water throughout that time, you're going to become severely dehydrated at some point. And so the duration of whatever you're doing definitely matters. But his thing was, yeah, around seven ounces I think it was off of body weight actually, but something like that every 15 minutes. And there was actually a big performance boost. Now I think it does serve some purposes and I'm not smart enough to know um, other than it makes it a little harder mentally, but I think training without allowing yourself to drink water is good as well. But again, that, that would be short duration stuff, not, um, not long. Cause I think being dehydrated could be, yeah, not great. So maybe so. I guess what like that guy's theory is like if I'm drinking a little bit of water every 15 minutes, I'll be able to push harder for and longer and and get more of a workout. I guess. Well, and all that water is just serving all the all the functions of the body that needs it instead of going because um, every 15 minutes you're able to just keep that supply chain coming. Whereas if you know maybe you get maybe you stop and you drink 28 ounces, but that's after an hour, that's, it's going to, your body's going to absorb it and use it differently than kind of a little bit consistently throughout that time. Right. Would be my guess. Um, I definitely think there's something to, and I use this more for gym workouts, but you know, if we're doing like a 20 minute conditioning effort and let's say it's kind of a nonstop thing where we want to, you know, row 500 meters, do, 20 kettlebell swings and 20 burpees. And you're going to go through that as many times you can in 20 minutes. Um, I tell people that not to drink water because what you're doing essentially is your mind is saying, I want to rest and you're using water as an excuse to stop working. Mm. And so I think there is some mental toughness, if you will, or mental fitness that you can implore in those kind of situations to not allow yourself to, take that break, you know, because even if you claim your third, like you're not going to die in 20, 20 minutes of a workout. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think, I think there's some usefulness to uh, playing with that a little bit, obviously not on a side of like putting yourself at risk of anything, yeah. but um, like I recently with my finger and we uh, have been uh staying at a place for a little bit, but it's just up ski hill road for us. So it's a nice, like six mile road ride. Um, something I swear I'd never do on a bicycle, but I am. And, uh, so I've been riding to work when I can and it's, you know, 90 degrees here at Driggs, which is pretty freaking hot. And I'll do that home. And I don't, I don't take a camelback or anything. It's 45 minutes. And sometimes I'm like, yeah, I'd like some water halfway, but I don't, I don't need it. Do you think like varying that, my morning workout 
from just the mountain bike ride is like what is there any like performance upgrade that you could see and like switching it up a little bit like pretty much the only time i don't go on that mountain bike ride is if it rains and then i do like a like a hit workout high intensity training or whatever like watch a youtube 20 minute thing and do that like do you think it's worth like switching it up doing some different things do i think putting in like two days a week of strength work is pretty beneficial um and you can do that pretty easily at home even without weights right um using like tempo work is really beneficial so tempo is just basically a cadence for reps um so it's written in it'd be like three two one two right and each one of those is just a, a second representing a portion of the movement so let's take an air squat for a second so if you were doing air squats at a tempo of three one two one or sorry three two one two um the tempo always starts with the negative portion of the movement first right so you would be going down to the bottom of the squat for three seconds. So nice and smooth from the standing position down to the bottom of the squat. That'd be the first number, three seconds. Then you would, the second number is the bottom portion of that. So then you would hold that bottom position for two seconds. And then you would come up in one second because that's the third number. And then the fourth number represents the top of the movement. And so you would hold at the top, you said, for two seconds before you started the next rep. So that would be three seconds down, one second, um, two seconds at the bottom, one second up, two seconds at the top, and you start your next rep. The nice thing about being incorporating a tempo, and that, those numbers could be anything because they're just representing a time scale, right? Um, is that you're able to take body weight, which is fairly light for like strength work, and, and use it as strength work because you're increasing that time under tension. And so even like grabbing a bag or a backpack or duffel bag and throwing some stuff in it just to make it weigh something and either throwing it on your back or holding it or something, you're able with tempo, you're able to get some pretty decent strength work going um, without having access to a gym. And so you can also then increase that even more by doing single limb movements, whether that's single leg squats or Bulgarian split squats or stuff like that and kind of getting creative with upper body movements um, you know, still at tempo, but you're able to get some decent, decent strength work in without having, you know, a plethora of dumbbells or barbells or stuff like that. Yeah. And so the way I kind of always look at it, if you're trying to, you know, do two weeks, two days a week of that, um, you can easily get in some like leg pushing stuff on maybe a Monday or Tuesday, which are like squats and then pair that with the upper body, either push or pull, and then just flip that around on the other day of the week. So then you're doing something that would be like a leg pull, which could be like a deadlift, right? More posterior chain. So picking something up off the ground and then whatever you didn't do. So if you did push-ups on Monday or Tuesday, then you're doing like pull-ups on that following day of the week, right? So throughout the whole week, you're at least getting some total body work in. Um, and it's not so much that, because again, like I believe strength is a big part of dirt biking and it's very beneficial from a longevity standpoint, from injury prevention, from, you know, uh, recovering quicker for riding more and all those things, but it's not a strength sport. And so you definitely don't need to be lifting heavy and hard in the gym five days a week. You know, you can do kind of like minimal effective dose, similar to that zone two work. Um, 
you know, if you can get a minimal effective dose in, you're kind of going to get best of a lot of worlds. What, uh, <clears throat> what kind of workout would you do to make the enduro bike feel light like a trials bike? <laughs> just, just out of curiosity. Like, I feel like you got to like lift some heavy weight, but like when I get on that trials bike, just picking it up and moving around, I'm like, man, I wish, like, how ripped do I have to be for the enduro to feel like that? like what kind of workout is that is that like that'd be like heavy like like lifting weights all day like you know honestly i don't think so i think i think the goal would be to be moderately strong for your body size right so like there's probably some markers in there that are needed like a you know body weight back squat by maybe five reps minimum or something like that and then 10 strict pull-ups and I'm not sure what those metrics are. I've, I've given this a lot of thought. It's really hard because for, for most things, you can put those kind of numbers to the activity, right? Like if you're going to go into a military selection process, like it's pretty easy to come up with, with markers that you should hit because the test that they have has markers that you need to hit. So you can be like, okay, I need to be able to run a sub seven minute mile. I need to be able to, you know, do these things. And so training for that becomes easy. Dirt biking is different. It's hard to put numbers on that because ultimately if you can, you know, it doesn't matter if you can do 20 strict bodyweight pull-ups necessarily. That doesn't, it's, it's such a different thing because you're riding a bike with a motor and like there's all these skill issues and, and everything else. So I, I do feel like there's a, a basic line that if you're st- you know, you have a good body weight to strength ratio. Um, it's probably good enough. And then from there, I think some of the undervalued things are maybe a little bit more um, like trying to be an athlete, like do some jumping, do some sprinting, uh, train some plyometrics. Because at the end of the day, to make the bike feel lighter, it's, it's about you being able to move your body around on the machine. I think so being able to, to get your weight from one peg to the other peg real quick, you know, to be able to, to dab without not in putting all your body weight on the ground, being able to keep that peg weighted as you're going up a climb with one foot off the bike. Like there's a tremendous amount of core work and that core has got to translate everything from the hand to the foot. Right. Um, so I think to make the bike feel lighter is being able to, yeah, control your body through space and and direct force to the extremities almost. Yeah, totally. I mean, I totally agree with that because all the trials videos that I'm watching, it's like it's it's more about where you place your weight and how you move your weight. If you're going to do like a nose wheelie pivot turn, it's about shifting your hips to the direction you want to go and then compress it and then compressing your weight to weight the suspension and then moving it. It's like different than just like, you're not just like pushing with your calves. Like what I probably thought when I was starting to do them before trials, you know, that definitely moving your weight around. Like that's, that's the huge thing about trials and being able to translate to that, to the big bike. Um, The timing difference from, or, or being able to have the, it's almost patience with that, right? Like, Something that struck me is when I watched trials, I always thought it was so aggressive because it looks aggressive. You know, if somebody's jumping up an eight foot wall in front of them from no stop, 
Like it looks very aggressive. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I don't know what it feels like because I can't do that. But when you're out on the trials bike and you are trying to work on little hops and pivots, it's so much more about like patience and balance and body position. Even, even the little things like I watched my friend who's, who's pretty, well, he's, he's pretty good. And, uh, and try and mimic him. And like, I will, if I try and do a nose wheelie pivot, right. I would end up throwing my body before the bike even started going that way. Right. And kind of just fall over. Whereas if I would compress the suspension, be super patient and let the bike start to move with me, then I could start to get it around. Right. But I would, I was of the mind, like I would try and do it with my body um, without letting the bike do the work that it should be doing too. If that makes any sense. Yeah. That's it. It's tricky. It's a weird, it's a weird sport. Just like, how, yeah. So it's a lot of different things that you have to balance together to figure out kind of maybe the last workout question, just for picking your bike up off the ground, you know, bike falls over maybe downhill and you have to like pick it up by the handlebars. Like what would that be like a squat or something that would help you lift that up easier? Cause that that takes a lot of energy out of you. If you, if you have to do that, it does I feel like focusing on like a few of those small things, like I feel like could be a, a pretty good game. For yeah. I think deadlift and then either so a bench press or a strict press those two movements because you're kind of going so a thruster is like a good one but definitely a little bit harder to load maybe safely and heavily um but deadlift is a good one learning the proper deadlift form and then being able to apply that to the bike too just as far as um being able to keep the back in a good position use the legs and and not just bend over with a rounded spine and then crank on it yeah yeah that makes sense it's almost like figure out how to use your body properly to get it up. Yeah, definitely. Um, tire flips, which is definitely more of a strong man or kind of a little bit of a CrossFit thing are really good just cause you're, you're getting really low, like cause barbells are, are about nine inches off the ground with plates on the side. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, but a tire, if you're trying to get your fingers under a tire, um, you got to get down another nine inches. So being able to get down there in a good, good low or a braced position, and then pick it up. And then what you'll see with the technique of that is like you get your knee under it, right? And then you flip your hands over. And then from there, it's more of a push with the legs and push with the upper body. And so that to me is actually really similar to sometimes getting a bike up off the ground. Yeah. No, that's interesting. Cool. I think about so seeing more tires for trials riding. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and lift them up every once in a while. And then all those rocks that you could barely get in the van. That's a good one. <laughs> Oh gosh. Yeah. Those things are tough to get in the van. <laughs> Just lift those suckers up. Huh? So, awesome. Well, um, you got kind of anything else you were wanting to get out there for let people know how to get a hold of you. And yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm mainly on Instagram at trailbound co. Um, posting parts that I break and cool places that I ride. Um, and everyone else that's doing it too. So that little bit of YouTube, try to get the race videos out if, you, if anyone's curious about watching some of those videos they do commentaries of that and and if you want to check out the parts that we sell trailbound.co it's the website and yeah that's about it thanks for uh, having me on the podcast it's cool cool to do this i'm 
hoping uh, both of our fingers are yeah. healed up soon and we can we can do some riding yeah up north for sure awesome well yeah first guest thanks a lot for being on uh enduro method pocket yeah uh, yeah we'll have to do it again at some point oh well yeah see you soon